Hi there, my name's Will King Kingswood and you're watching or listening to Raw Sport and another one of our F1 specials, this time looking at the Spanish Grand Prix. A Spanish Grand Prix that I would say we could, it was better than expected. I think that's definitely what we were thinking. It was a quite boring one, but then, then the strategy of the front two runners seemed to make it quite interesting. Obviously, I can't do this on my own, so I've got two great guests joining me uh the first guest um raw new raw news head of news you know him he's been on many of the shows before it's cam hall very good afternoon will it's the first time i've actually done one of these f1 ones in like ages you know exams and stuff just been catching up with me but it's, it's nice to be back yeah i mean everyone's got exams at the moment i guess oh don't, on don't, don't, don't tell me don't remind <laughs> me i want i just want to get it out of my head completely forget it's happening <laughs> Let's just focus on the F1 for the moment. And um, a new guest on the show, um, Work F1 Society, not quite, a new, not quite an official society yet, but we're looking forward to it next year. Um, their head of social media and content, um, we have Jack Rowe. How are you, Jack? Hi, yeah, I'm all right. Um, you know, it was a great race last week, so, well, two weeks ago now, wasn't it? Oh, it's been a while. Yeah, it was. I'm I know, it's to... been... Yeah, it's been it's been a long time. Um, so actually, let me start with the uh, F1 society quickly. Obviously, we've got the Instagram at the bottom. Why did you sort of why did you like just decide to start one like this year especially? Uh, well, it wasn't it wasn't me who set it up originally. We've got um, Amy was uh, the first one on it. She had a group of friends, um, and I think someone had put it on Warwick Fashion as well because uh, you know nothing can nothing can happen at Warwick without it being on Warwick Fashion. But um. Someone put the link to like our OG WhatsApp there, and then it grew. We liked like a hundred people within that. Um, so I think the next step was just making F1 society. There are obviously enough people interested in it, and I mean, you guys are testament to that, aren't you? So. Yeah, I mean, I was always thinking like, why isn't why isn't there one? We got like football ones, got rugby ones, and it seems like a good time to start. But Obviously, we've now got to sort of recap the Spanish Grand Prix, a good race that we saw. And I'll run through the um, finishing positions for people um, listening to the podcast. Obviously, if you're watching it, you can see them at the bottom there. But we had Hamilton, Verstappen, Bottas, then Leclerc, and Ricardo, Sainz, Norris, Ocon, and then Gasly rounding up the top 10. So I guess we'll start by going through like the drivers finishing. And we'll start with Hamilton, obviously. At the start of the weekend, he was on 99 poles, and it was always the question over whether he could get to 100, which he obviously did. Um, I'll come to you, Cam, first. Did you ever think that Hamilton would be able to get to 100 poles? Because obviously, first person ever to do it, and it's such a massive number. Oh, it's incredible. I mean, he's always been a very quick driver, but to get 100 poles, considering Schumacher, you know, with 91 wins, seven world titles, I think only got 68 poles. It's absolutely extraordinary to put that lap together time and time again on a Saturday is so difficult to do. So credit to Lewis Hamilton. He's had some fantastic qualifying performances over the years. And to get across that line and get that 100th pole um, over the weekend was, fun. I think, absolutely fantastic for him. Of course, um, Lewis has been had a bit of a habit recently of not converting those poles into being down into the lead in turn one, which I'm sure we'll come to in a bit. But certainly on a Saturday... I don't think there are any better drivers than Lewis Hamilton, especially in the last couple of years. And I think it's testament to how good he is that he's managed to get to those 100 poles. 
I mean, yeah, I'll come to you, Jack, next. Would you agree with that? Would you say that Hamilton is almost the actual, mate, we always call George Russell Mr. Saturday, but maybe we have to give Hamilton that credit considering he's now hit 100 poles? I mean, yeah, you've taken the words straight out of my mouth. I was going to call him that. Um, you know, if I think you can almost summarise it as Valtteri looks strong. He makes the Mercedes um, look dominant every weekend on a Friday and then Hamilton just ups his game. He just has this extra gear that he always goes into. I, I don't I don't know how he does it, to be honest, because if you if you watch the free practice sessions, he never looks like he's a um, an eight-time world champion, maybe a one-time world champion, but he's never quite there on um, Bottas' pace. But yeah, every, every time Saturday, he steps up. FP3, quality, he's there. Yeah, but I mean, obviously, you can't win the race on Saturday, so we'll come to... What happened on Sunday, obviously we'll mention it a bit later, but Verstappen getting past on the run into turn one, but Mercedes sort of surprised everyone really and sort of made the race into a bit of deja vu by employing the two-stop strategy. I mean, I'll come to uh, Jack, Jack first. Uh, when you saw uh, Mercedes hitting for the second time, what, what was running through your head? Did you think that they were going to be able to get Verstappen? I, mm, I don't know. I think... I think in my head that was the one like the one pit decision that made sense in that race to me um, because they were they were behind they were catching very slowly but yeah they had they had to do something um, and that was that was the move wasn't it it, it worked out really well for them um, I was really worried as soon as it saw it I was like hang on it, Hamilton was ahead was Hamilton ahead you know he wasn't was he no he was just I think he was just behind by a few seconds yeah but. I don't know. It's Spain, isn't it? It's so hard to overtake. But, yeah, I guess that didn't matter, did it? Straight into, straight into turn one later on in the race. But I was I was worried for a long time that he was just going to get up behind the step and just stay there for 20 laps or something. No, that's a good point. I mean, I'll come to Cam next. Obviously, he had been behind the step for so long. And because Spain is such a difficult track to overtake on, do you think that Mercedes was sort of thinking of that and were thinking, we're never going to get past him, so we've got to do something different. Well, there's precedent for this, was, of course, Hungary 2019. Very similar position. I think Lewis was running behind Verstappen by a few seconds in that race. Mercedes bring him in, put him onto the two-stop strategy. They know he's going to have the tyres. Verstappen is going to be looking to keep the tyres going. And again, it was a similar thing. It was, you know, very 50-50 whether durability would last. The end, Verstappen would be nursing the tyres, whereas Lewis would be able to go go for the fastest laps, not really have to worry about the durability. And again, the Hungaro ring has a very similar characteristic to Barcelona. It's a very difficult track to overtake on. The corners don't make it easy for cars to follow. They don't really have only one really good op overtaking opportunity into the first corner. So Mercedes have precedent for this exact situation. And again, you know, we talk about Lewis Hamilton being able to deliver on a Saturday. And I think that is really testament to the fact that Mercedes know that in these kind of situations in the race where you need Lewis Hamilton to be putting in effectively qualifying laps to be able to catch up to Verstappen. They know he can do it. So, yeah, I, I it was interesting. There was a video that F1 released today on YouTube and it showed kind of the Mercedes decision. And very much that strategy team was going, you know, we're confident this will work. If we do this, it will work, but we have to do it now. And if we don't do it now, we can't do it. We have to kind of outfox Red Bull a bit here. We kind of have to... If they do it, we don't do it. If they don't do it, we do it. And I think that's the confidence that Mercedes have, that 
They know whatever they know that Lewis Hamilton can do whatever he needs to do to win a race. We've seen they use the strategy in Bahrain effectively to give Lewis Hamilton that slightly longer middle stint and allow him to get out in front. Of course, Verstappen at that point had the fast tyres, but they knew Lewis could hold up. Very different situation this time. But again, you know you can trust Lewis Hamilton to do what he needs to do. He's that good a driver. There's precedent for this on a similar sort of track. So yeah, I think it was a it was a really inspired call from Mercedes, but one that ultimately in the end got proven right. I mean, yeah, that seems to be the case. And I'll come back to Jack. Do you think that any other team could have done this? Do you think if it was like Red Bull in a faster car behind the Hamilton and pitting Verstappen, do you think Verstappen would have got past Hamilton if it had been the case? Think we, I, we might have think lost. We him, might I be think. having a few technical difficulties <laughs> here. I guess I'll come to you, Cam, with the same question. I mean, would you think that if the roles were reversed, would um, Verstappen have managed to get past Hamilton? I mean, he probably could. I mean, he did do it in Bahrain, but I think that was in many ways. I think the fact Mercedes took the initiative with the strategy that day. I think Red Bull obviously know they're very good with pit stops and they can do clever strategies we've seen them do it before indeed Verstappen when he won in Austria in 2019 did the exact same thing you know very late pit stop putting down the field but they had the confidence for him to be able to go and overtake and eventually pull off that very brilliant overtake on Leclerc on I think like lap 69 to win that race so Verstappen I think could do it but yeah I think a lot of it goes down to just the fact that I know Mercedes obviously have that trust in Lewis Hamilton to be able to put those laps in and he is, without doubt, the best driver on the grid in these kind of situations. That's not to say, you know, as I said, Verstappen could have done it, I think, but you'd feel a lot more confident having Lewis Hamilton do it than you would Max Verstappen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess as we've been talking about Hamilton and Verstappen, sort of as a pair, we'll move on to Verstappen and talk about his quite aggressive move in turn one. It was a move that sort of signalled that something is beginning to change in the dynamic between the two. What do you what do you think that is, Jack? Do you think that Verstappen is becoming more aware of how much danger Hamilton poses for his chances of winning a first world title? I'm not so sure things have changed between them. I think that as drivers, they haven't changed too much. But the fact that Red Bull are now able to contest Mercedes on a regular basis has... Is, you know, I don't think change, something's changed in Max, but the situations have changed around him. So, I mean, we saw in uh, Imola, I think, um, that for first corner move from Verstappen was, again, very aggressive, wasn't it? Um, is it? I can't remember. I'm rubbish. <laughs> my my memory's um, a sieve. I, I think it was Imola. The, the first corner. Yeah, no, um, Imola. Either way, yeah. basically, yeah, yeah I think... Um, I think Verstappen's. Yeah, it was okay. I should just stick with my with my with my gut in there. Yeah, um, I think Verstappen's always been a very aggressive driver, um, but I just don't think that he's been able to show that um, up until this point. Yeah, I mean, obviously you mentioned Imola. I guess I'll come to you, Cam. Um, do you think that obviously, actually, something Zach Brown has said? Um, obviously, CEO of or CEO of Team Principal McLaren. He reckons there's 
going to be a terrible crash between Hamilton and Verstappen at some point. Do you think that is the case? Or do you think Hamilton is like has the new to always back out if Verstappen begins to close the door or make quite a late lunge into Turn 1? It'll be inadvertent if it is a crash. It's not going to be deliberate. I think it will be a case of, I think, both drivers just misjudging their braking points or like... It, or literally a case where one of them's going for a slightly aggressive move or they lock the brakes, they have a slide. It won't be, you know, as a, I think as a result of both drivers being too aggressive. I think ultimately Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen, I think particularly in the last couple of years, Lewis Hamilton's been a very mature racer ever since he joined Mercedes. Verstappen's really developed that maturity, I would say, since mid-2018. And now he's going for the championship, I think, is driving the best he has in terms of his maturity. So... I think both drivers know how to back out of a move. It's not going to be deliberate. It will be something like an accidental tap or a driver that having a bit of a slide or a car problem with the brakes or something. That, but that's not to say I rule out. And to be honest, I do think it probably would happen. You will get these accidental clashes between title rivals in Formula 1. You know, you think back Hamilton-Rosberg, for example, you, you can count at least one or two clashes between them every season they were going for the title. Schumacher and Hakkinen, you know, have previously had these little clashes between the two of them, Senna and Prost. Now, admittedly, you could say that in the course in 1990 Suzuka, then that probably was a bit deliberate. But title rivals do tend to have these clashes. It's just the nature of the sport. They're competitive drivers. They're going to make mistakes. I don't think it's going to be like a catastrophic clash that Zach Brown makes it out to be. There will, But there will be something, but it's not going to be deliberate. And I think that's the key point to make these are two very mature drivers and i don't think that if there isn't any accident between the two of them this season it's not going to be as a result of one just completely driving like an idiot yeah i mean speaking of possible mistakes um we saw quite a slow pit stop for the red bulls um on Verstappen's first off which is quite uncharacteristic and it seemed to be because Verstappen sort of came in without sort of telling the team. I mean, I'll come to you, Jack. Do you think that's sort of interesting that maybe Verstappen's beginning to take control rather than having the team make decisions for him? I think it was a bit of a miscommunication from the team. Um, I read the report and it was, they, they said, I don't know, they didn't mention a pit at all, but they, they talked about tyres on that lap and then he came in. I think possibly he got it in his mind who's coming in soon. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think Verstappen's been set up as number one in Red Bull. For a white brain. Perez coming in hasn't changed that. He knows he's number one. I don't think team orders or, you know, I don't think anything would have changed this year. Okay. I mean, and finally, Cam, I'll come to you. After, after the race, obviously, he comes second. To Hamilton, he'd got the fastest lap point, so it was only a six-point deficit for the race. But he said that there was no way that um, the Red Bull could have held Mercedes behind them, which is quite an interesting dynamic considering what we saw saw at the start of the season. Do you sort of think a bit of gamesmanship, or do you think Red Bull are genuinely concerned that they've now got the second second fastest car rather than the fastest car? I think the thing about Mercedes is is a, the operation in terms of being at the front of the field. They're a very consistent team. They've been there for the last few years. They know what they're doing. They know, like we saw with Strategy Call, they know how to make it work. They know to take those risks and they know how to make it pay off. 
I do think I would say at the moment it's it's very difficult to tell between the Mercedes and the Red Bull. I would say they're very much neck and neck, which is for Mercedes, considering where we thought they were after preseason testing. You know, that's very good for them. And we know that they bought parts to Portimao, that they've been putting stuff on the car, they put some more stuff on in Barcelona. So I guess the thing that Red Bull have always had in their past, which I guess could be interesting, is they've been very good at developing throughout the season. And we've seen that by the end of the season, Red Bull can start off with the third fastest car, can end up with potentially the fastest. I think what's going to be interesting looking to 22 is, and the new regulations next year, is do Red Bull put so much of an emphasis on developing the car this year, given that they have to not only build a new car for new regulations next year, but set up an entire powertrain operation for their new engine next year. So I think it's going to be very interesting. I wouldn't expect Red Bull to develop as much this season. And I don't know perhaps if that is an omission from Verstappen that, you know, they, they feel they can't get as much out of the car throughout the season as they could normally. But it's I would say it's very neck and neck between Mercedes and Red Bull. And I think the difference is being made at the moment in terms of the operation within the teams. And I think Mercedes, just through their ruthless consistency, are a much more polished team in these kind of situations than Red Bull are. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned Mercedes, and we'll come on to the second Mercedes driver and the last one of our traditional Hamburg podium, uh, Valtteri Bottas. And he sort of had quite an anonymous race, obviously stuck behind Charles Leclerc for a number of laps at the beginning and managed to jump in at the pit stops. Jack, I'll come to you. Do you think that Bottas just isn't performing this season? Do you think that he needs to up his game? He needs to be getting past the Leclerc's to be supporting Hamilton, especially as the championship is turning out to be so close this season? Yeah, I mean, from a Mercedes perspective, they're always going to want him in the fight, aren't they? Um, and we see um, McLaren and Ferrari especially are getting a little bit closer than they were, at least last year. Um, but on the other hand, Red Bull are in the same situation, aren't they? I'd say um, Perez hasn't probably done any better than Bottas. Probably you'd say he's done worse this season, which, you know, we give allowances for. But I don't think Mercedes can be too unhappy. He's always been the, the dream number two driver, right? That's what um, people always say. And... I don't know. This year, Hamilton stepped up, Verstappen stepped up, and Bottas again. He's proving he's a good driver, but not a great one. I think. Yeah, and um, but another thing that we saw um, for Bottas is that when Hamilton had pitted and was coming back through, but trying to make up the time to Verstappen, he, Bottas did not make it easy for him. Getting past, he had to work for that overtake as opposed to just allowing Hamilton pass. I mean, I'll come to you, Cam. Why, why do you think that is, especially like now? Why do you think that Bottas made it so difficult for Hamilton rather than being a sort of team player? I feel Bottas has got a point to prove. And even though even though he says that about all the rumours, obviously all the rumours that Bottas could be moved mid-season and the kind of the press sales, I mean, I don't think it's helped because I don't think it's true. I don't see Mercedes even considering replacing Bottas mid-season. But I do think he's perhaps trying to make a point at the moment. I mean, he's been trying to make a point for, you know, each of the last couple of seasons that he comes in completely reborn, has a very good first couple of races, and then just kind of slips away towards the end of the season. So I think Bottas, I think there's a little bit of him trying to show, you know, just how valuable he is. I don't know if he's trying to show it to the team, 
because certainly Toto Wolff has been very clear of the value Bottas has to that team. I don't know if he's trying to show it off to the press, maybe. I don't know if they're getting into him, potentially. But, yeah. I mean, the thing is, Bottas doesn't, didn't have to give that place up. He was racing Lewis. Obviously, the team told him that they're on different strategies. But if, you know, if Bottas was perfectly within his right to not do that. So, yeah, I think Bottas is in many ways trying to prove a point at the moment. I don't know if he was trying to show that he can battle Lewis, but ultimately he knew... In the end, there wouldn't be much. There wouldn't be much reason to do it because Lewis would probably overtake him on a straight. But yeah, it. I. I think the whole circle of rumors, especially given the George Russell situation as well, and I think the fact that that got quite heavily exaggerated after Imola, and of course the crash between Bottas and Russell. I think that's playing a part a little bit, and I do think Bottas is responding a little bit to some of that criticism that he's had in the press, even though he says he isn't. And I do think it's affecting him somewhat. And I think given that Toto Wolf has always says the value of Bottas is the fact he's a reliable number two, I don't think that necessarily helped him. Yeah. I mean, I'll come to you, Jack, with the same sort of question. Do you think it was really worth Bottas making like that defence, especially that seemed to be quite half-hearted? I think it was like the only overtake made into turn 10 for the entire race happened to be Hamilton on Bottas. Yeah, I mean, I think Cam hit the nail on the head, really. Is I, I don't know what, what his idea was. He's He can't be trying to appeal to the team for that because he's not a number one driver. If he's not aware of that, then maybe that explains it. But, you know, he has to, he has to realise that that's not his role in the team. He's, he's not going to go win that race from that point on. Is he trying to prove himself to other teams? It's, it's, that's another bizarre reason that I can think of, but it really is the only reason I can think. Like, uh, who? Uh, what does he gain from that? I don't understand at all. He's getting third. Regardless of what happens, he's getting third. But if he defends, Mercedes lose points, or they crash, and then they lose a lot of points. If he's trying to show that he still has what he had at Williams, um, you know, four years ago for other teams because, you know, he's scared of losing a seat and maybe just leaving F1 altogether. Maybe that explains it. But other than that, I just don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, it did seem to be quite a weird one. Obviously, actually, speaking of second drivers, uh, we'll skip over Charles Leclerc quickly and come to Sergio Perez, who, I mean, finished an uncharacteristic fifth in the Red Bull as opposed to what he would be expected to be for maybe even challenging the other two Mercedes. Like, I'll come to you, um, Cam, first. Do you think that Perez should be given time or do you think that he should be up to scratch and he should be being able to challenge Verstappen, Hamilton and Bottas by now? Well, I think firstly, half the reason he finished in fifth and not fourth was because of how brilliant Charles Leclerc was in that race. And Charles Leclerc is showing him off easily to be the best driver outside the top two teams. So I think I think that's partly a big reason why he finished there. Ultimately, to finish at fifth ahead of every other driver is, I think, where Perez would have wanted to be. He's certainly doing a better job than Alex Albon was. Alex Albon, I don't think, would have finished fifth. I think he would have been much further down in the midfield scrap. I think Perez has got at least been able to distinguish himself from that. I mean, the Red Bull this year is an easier car to handle. So he should be able to get up to pace a bit more. But I think it's just a general thing. 
with all the drivers that moved into the new teams this season, that none of them have really got up to pace yet. Red Bull need to give Perez, I think, at least a bit more time to re- until we really need to start feeling like we're seeing what we can get from Perez out of the car. I would say perhaps up to Austria, up to France. He should really be up to speed by then. He's had time to fully integrate into the Red Bull machine. Of course, COVID hasn't helped. I think we've got to be realistic. COVID will not have helped drivers settling into the team environment, getting used to their engineers, getting used to the cars. It won't have helped that, but he does need to get there soon. But I think I think just in general, the way that Red Bull kind of always gear the car to Verstappen, they always gear the team very much around the number one driver. I think per- you, you can't expect Perez necessarily to be up at, up fighting, but certainly he needs to be, I would say, at least fighting Bottas more regularly. He's not. I'd say he's not entirely there, although he's doing better than Albon was. But I think that's if there is anywhere more for Perez to go, that's what he needs to be doing, making sure he's constantly fighting Bottas for that third spot. Yeah, I'll come to you now, Jack. Um, it's obviously an issue we've seen with Red Bull second drivers over the last few years. We had Gasly first, then we had Albon, and now we have Perez, who seems to be underperforming, especially when compared to how he ended last season with what would have been a third in Bahrain, what was a win in Sakir. Do you think that there is something wrong with the Red Bull second seat? Obviously, it's the most asked question in F1 at the moment. Why can no one ever perform in the Red Bull second seat? But why do you think that is? You know, it's, that's an impossible question to answer, I think. Unless you're... I bet even Christian Horner couldn't answer this question. Um, but I'll give it a shot. Like, um, I think it boils down to lots of little things. I don't think you put your finger on one specific thing. There's no magic pill that's going to save <laughs> the Red Bull second drivers. Um, but, yeah, four, 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 how many now? Gasly, Kvyat, Albon, and now Perez is struggling. It's It's... It's become something of a trend, let's say. Um, I think it comes down to uh, one of the things is just Red Bull's attitude to um, to drivers, and you see that in the lower formulae. Um, they drop they drop people um, just as as quickly as um, they stop performing. So in the lower formulas, they take in massive group of people and then they just straight through them as soon as um, as soon as they show any sign of weakness, they're gone uh, and. That's given them one great driver. It's given them one great driver in Verstappen. Um, and it's led to Ricardo leaving. It's led to this this absolute chaos they've been through the last three years. Um, let's think. Uh, who's a good example? Brendan Hartley. Uh, he was in the Toro Rosso seat for a year. And he didn't really... He, he, was, he was too old for F1. But he didn't do badly. He had a lot of misfortune. He cost them a lot of money. money. But he didn't do badly, and he was just gone in a year. Uh, Jean-Éric Vern, he went on to become a two-time Formula E champion. Um, he was gone in two years, I think. You know, that man has talent, no doubt, but Red Bull dropped him just like that. So I think I think they're too quick um, to get rid of people. That's, that's, that's what it comes down to, and a lot of other things as well. Yeah, I mean, time seems to be of the essence in the Red Bull garage, and if you aren't performing, then you seem to be out. Um, Obviously, one driver who did leave uh, Red Bull was Daniel Ricciardo, and he now seems to be embroiled in a fight between uh, Ferrari and his teammate Lando Norris. I mean, I'll come to, uh, I'll go back to you, Jack. Uh, do you think this is obviously seems to be the battle for the place at the moment? And it does seem to be that every race there's almost a different driver 
who's performing really well. We saw in Imola, we've got Lando Norris on the podium and this race in particular, Charles Leclerc put in a really good performance. So how do you think this will develop sort of as the season goes on? You like the tough questions, don't you? Um, <laughs> McLaren and Ferrari, oh, that's a, that's a battle. I love, I love the season. I love watching the midfield fight. I loved it when it was F1.5 and it was trying to work out, um, you know, pre-season who, um, who would be the best. But now, these two teams, they seem to be absolutely dead level um, and it's going to be fascinating. I think it's more interesting to look at within the teams than it is to look at how they're going to face up because it'll change based on their, um, you know, their mechanical philosophy or which which circuit we're at. But what shouldn't change is Norris versus Ricardo and Leclerc versus Sainz. And I think at the moment you've got two fairly clear winners of um, each of those battles. So yeah, I, I will. I, it's, yeah, yeah, you go ahead. Yeah, I'm right. Fine. Um, I mean, I was sort of. You mentioned there's two fairly clear winners, but McLaren in particular, you can, like, Ricardo's outqualified Norris on a number of occasions. Obviously, in Imola, track limit sort of um, had an impact on Norris's final lap, but even at this race, we see that Ricardo finishing two positions ahead of Norris. Do you think that that battle is a lot closer than the Ferrari one between Leclerc and Sainz? I think it is. And to be to be honest, I think the thing with the Ferrari battle is that Carlos Sainz is by no means a bad driver. He's one of the best on the grid. It's just Charles Leclerc is an exceptional driver. And he's really matured over the last couple of years in particular, which is why, you know, he's the one who's going to get those special results for Ferrari. I think for McLaren, I think with Norris and Ricardo, I think they're very well matched. I think Norris has really developed. I think having Ricardo as his teammate is a very different challenge for Lando because I think with Carlos, he was very much still getting into his groove. I think the relationship between Carlos and um, Lando is also very different from that between Daniel and Lando, which is a lot more focused. I think it's a lot more professional, shall we say. I think they don't necessarily see each other as best mates like Carlos and Lando did. I think there's very much more of a, a sort of more, I'd say, I, I say professional in the sense that it's not quite making jokes every two seconds. And I feel that I think is that why, where the relationship's different. That's why I think Lando has stepped up this season. I think that's why they're very well matched. As you said, with the qualifying, obviously, that, you know, Norris should have been doing better. Obviously, he had that mistake in Imola. I think with Ricardo, I think it's just been in the races at the moment. I just don't think he's got the best out of that car in the races at the moment. Obviously, Norris knows the team a lot more. He knows how to get more out of the car and out the strategy department. So Ricardo will be up there, and I think both is going to be a very close battle there. But I, and I think for both drivers this season, I think it's going to be in both McLaren and Ferrari. It's going to be these performances that all four of those drivers are capable of of getting those podiums, of just getting those exceptional results, and then performing consistently elsewhere. And obviously, within Ferrari, you'd imagine Leclerc to do it more than Science. Although you could easily see Science getting on the podium a few times this season. In McLaren, I think once Ricardo's up to pace, both drivers will have this very good opportunity there. And I think that's just why it's really exciting because all those drivers and both of those teams, I'd say, are pretty much neck and neck. And it's going to rely on just those couple of exceptional performances that, you know, either anyone in those teams could pull out 
Bar, I would say probably Charles Leclerc more, but McLaren more consistently across both drivers. It's going to be fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I'll come back to you quickly. You mentioned the podium and what we're seeing sort of, especially in qualifying, is that McLaren and Ferrari are sort of becoming able to mix with your Red Bulls and your Mercedes. You think that if, let's say, I don't know, we'll go back to Imola, had Norris got his lap in and had it not deleted the tournament, I think he would have qualified third in the end. Do you think that if one of the Ferraris or the McLarens has a really good qualifying, do you think that that could throw a few spanners in the works for Red Bull and for Mercedes in the race? It would change the way they look at it strategically. And if they can, I mean, the thing is, both Red Bull and McLaren, I do, sorry, Red Bull and Mercedes, I think, have the best cars in the race. I think they're able to pull off more of the gaps, which I think is perhaps where if they can pull out a gap early on, then the strategy may not come into effect so much. But I mean, we saw at times last season, Racing Point were able to mix up in the top, but it didn't really have much of an effect in the race. So I think we need to see a little bit more from both if McLaren and Ferrari in the races. I think we need to see them being able to properly fight up at the top. I think certainly if they can mix amongst Bottas and Perez a bit more, I think that's where it's going to get interesting. And we saw it with Leclerc in Barcelona. He was mixing with Bottas. He was mixing with Perez. And he was making it difficult for both Mercedes and Red Bull to try and use their second drivers as buffers almost for their number one driver because you had that Ferrari in there who was really just an outlier in effect of what both teams wanted to do. So I think if they can do more of that, it's going to be interesting. But certainly McLaren and Ferrari are the third and fourth best cars on the grid and they've got a lot of potential to potentially get into that top two. And I'm not saying they can't do it a bit more, but I think if they're going to be more of a threat, they need, I think, to improve their race pace, be more consistent, be able to convert what they've got in qualifying into something that means that they don't fall off Hamilton and Verstappen as easily in the races. Yeah, and um, for audio listeners, we've just got the constructor standings um, scrolling across the bottom, and there's only a five-point gap between Ferrari and McLaren, with McLaren being in third and Ferrari being in fourth. Just finally, Jack, I think, do you think that either team might disregard? If they're still in a battle for third, then they might keep going. But do you think either team, if they fall back by a few points, do you think they might disregard this season, especially as 2022 is such a big year for technological changes and they want to be ready for that because you could end up getting like a five, six-year um, heads five, six-year advantage, I've seen with Mercedes when they really, really went for it in 2014. Yeah, I mean, that's a tricky one. Um, it's hard to say behind the scenes what um, what's going to go on. But I think um, we've had a couple of teams say they're not developing their car anymore. But McLaren this season seem to have, um, they seem to be on of the philosophy that they go, they're going for it this season. Um, and they, they're going to get as many points for it as, as, as they can. Um, Ferrari, kind of the same. I think it more comes from the engine point of view. Um, obviously, last year was awful for them. Um, the engine just wasn't there at all. Uh, and Bonotto knew he had to step up. But whether that means they're developing the whole car is is a really difficult question to answer. Um, yeah, I think with new regulations, it's something we haven't seen in seven years now. It's been a, it's been a long, long set. Um, so, I mean, Haas never even, never even had to develop a new car, um, to new regulations, but, uh, I don't, so it's, you know, that's, that's the team that we, 
that we know are just abandoning it and going for going for it next time. Uh, I can't I can't see it happening for um, McLaren and Ferrari. I think they'll have a plan and they'll stick to it regardless of where they will be um, in the constructor standings. Yeah, I mean it remains to be seen how the rest of the season goes. Now we'll sort of come on to more of like the more midfield midfielders, opposed to the upper midfield in Alpine, Alpha Tauri. And Aston Martin, do you? Th- I mean, obviously, uh, you can first. Do you think that sort of Alpine, we saw Ocon qualified fifth. Do you think they've sort of got a chance to start mixing it with um, Ferrari and McLaren, or do you think that's sort of like one-off races? So we saw them doing really well in Portugal, for example, um, last race. So do you think it's more of a one-off, and you'll see them do well at certain tracks, or do you think they've beginning to develop a car that can more consistently challenge? Yeah, I'd say they've stepped up, definitely. And, of course, I think they didn't obviously have a great testing program. I don't think they both drivers have properly, I think, got used to the car. I think the drivers you're starting to see become a lot more confident now. The Alpine is still behind McLaren and Ferrari. They do have some work to do there. But certainly out of all of those teams, if you're to say that one is going to be able to mix most there, I would say Alpine because I do think they've got the technical team that can do that. The drivers are feeling a lot more confident. I think Ocon is driving the best that he's driven since he's come back to Formula One, probably perhaps better than he was at Force India as well. So, yeah, I think Alpine have certainly got the last couple of races. I think we've started to see a lot more of the potential come out of that car. And you got to remember last season, they were, when they were Renault last season, just as if quick, if not just slightly slow in the racing point, and Mercedes in McLaren, sorry, in that battle for third. So they clearly know how to be able to fight at the top of the midfield. I just don't think they've really got over some of the problems they had in preseason testing yet. So they could get there. I, I think they may just fall slightly short of McLaren and Ferrari, but I think certainly they have the potential out of those teams to be the closest, which I guess is a something to follow up from is particularly concerning for Alpha Tauri considering how good they looked in testing for Alpine to now be there I think for Alpha Tauri that's not very good for them at all yeah I mean you're taking the words out of my mouth because I was going to go straight on to Alpha Tauri and come to you Jack do you think that they're underperforming this season obviously we saw how good they were in testing but they've made a lot of uncharacteristic errors putting the full wets on Gasly and Imola um, Gasly being out of his uh, pit of starting position and get, getting a five-second penalty at this race and Yuki Tsunoda retiring very early on. Do you think that they're underperforming and should be doing better and should be up nearer the um, Alpines, potentially even Ferrari and McLaren? Uh, I mean, that's, um, that's, that's a pretty uh, controversial question. But I think from, from my perspective, I just get my opinion on it, but AlphaTauri have really impressed me this season. Um, I think as F1 fans, we're very quick to get used to what the, the status quo is. So we just look at testing and suddenly it's AlphaTauri. They're the fourth best team or the third best team. And um, I, I don't think that's been the case. I think they've not had a fight for a couple of years. They weren't really in the midfield battle last year. Um, and maybe there are a few teething problems. You, you know, Yuki Tsunoda's fresh in, the youngest um, F1 driver uh, in a couple of years. Um, and on the grid as well uh it's bound to happen um yes they probably should have gotten more points from these races i think uh, you know not many people are going to argue from that um, but at the end of the day i'm i'm not too fussed about that if you look to where they were you know january 
um, and said, you'll be sixth in the championship, but you'll be right in a, a midfield battle. Um, they would have taken that, I think. Yeah, I mean, if they could start performing for my uh, fantasy team, that would be quite nice. <laughs> but but finally, we'll come on to the last uh, team out of the three, Astrid Martin. And I guess I'll come to you, Cam. Just like, what do you think has gone so, not wrong, but why do you think that they really haven't seen the successes that they did last year as racing point? Obviously, ending the season with a win, with their first win in Sakir. I think firstly, they've not got on top of the situation with their um, low rake floor design. I think clearly for the aero regulations this season, the way that obviously they almost did a copycat of the Mercedes in 2020, followed that on into 2021. Of course, Mercedes have got their package working almost for every condition. I don't think Aston Martin have quite got that. And it's very interesting, actually. There was an article I read um, a couple of weeks ago, which talked about Lawrence Stroll saying that he wanted to almost do a carbon copy of that low rate floor design, despite the fact the engineers wanted a completely different package. Now, it's an interesting one to see what, what Lawrence Stroll's doing in that team. We haven't heard much from him really this season, and it has been a disappointing one in terms of obviously the car's just not been performing. I think Lance has done okay, he's not been spectacular but he's been getting points at least, which I think is good for them. I think Sebastian has shown flashes of what he could do in that car, getting Q3 in Portimao. But again, if that's what we're really celebrating, you know, Vettel getting into Q3, that's really problematic. I think so. I think it's a mixture of many things. I don't think they've got on top of the car. The drivers haven't got on top of it, and I don't think they're performing their best, especially Sebastian, who I do think, you know, he had a, didn't have a good testing program at all. He is... I would say the furthest behind of all the new drivers into new teams this season. But I think he can get that consistency back. He can't. He can start getting good point hauls throughout the season. But I do think for Aston Martin, if they're being wise and they're looking at the car at the moment, it may be worth them putting their development onto 2022 and put more of an emphasis on that. And to be honest, if they decide to do that in a few races, I don't think that will surprise me at all. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to hard to say just why Aston Martin aren't as good as they were last year. And finally, we have Alfa Romeo, but there is nothing to talk about them. They're very, very not there at the moment. So I'll come to just finishing statements. What would you, what would you give that race out of 10, Jack? How, how good or how bad do you think it was? Well, I think right at the, right at the start, you said, um, what was it better than expected? I think that's the exact way to describe it, right? We're expecting boring three out of ten um and there was there was fighting and for a spain grand prix it was very good maybe not as good as uh 2016 when um you know verstappen got his first win and hamilton and rosberg collided on the first lap but it was a good one um but it was also a spain grand prix there was minimal overtaking so i'd give it a six out of ten okay and cam same question what would you give that race out of ten yeah i i don't think i could really disagree at all with what Jack said there. It, it was better than you'd expect for a Spanish Grand Prix, which says a lot of the confidence about, I think, people have of that track. I think there's two things that we need to do with Barcelona. Firstly, we need to get rid of the final chicane because it's an abomination to this planet. And secondly, I think we should turn Barcelona, we should get rid of the Spanish Grand Prix at Barcelona, make it the permanent testing track, hype that up a bit more, and then just make sure, replace the Spanish Grand Prix with Portimao. But that's the conversation for another day. For a Spanish Grand Prix at Barcelona, I think that was considering, I think, the strategy element 
liking that hungry race a couple of years ago i think really gave it that something else so yeah six out of ten i'd say is pretty good score right and um i'll just read out the uh current standings at the moment so we've got hamilton on 94 points verstappen on 80 bottas on 47 doris on 41 leclerc with 40 Perez on 32 ricardo with 24 science with 20 Ocon with 10 and finally in the top 10 gasly with eight so that's done with our recap obviously f1 doesn't stop only exist on the weekends and we've seen some news um over the last few weeks uh starting with the austrian double header now the turkey is off the um off the calendar obviously it's gone on the red list um a lot of f1 teams are based in the uk so it would have been impractical to go there so the f1 has moved the french grand prix forward a week and has gone to austria for the next two weeks um i guess i'll come to you cam what are your thoughts on that do you think that was the correct decision to do and how sort of disappointed are you that we can't see turkey i love istanbul park so i'm obviously disappointed we can't go there and obviously we're disappointed that we couldn't go to canada like we were planning to do originally covid was going to affect this season we saw it affect the first couple first affect the first couple of races obviously seeing australia be moved to the end of the season and china we're not sure what's going on there i think the canada switch in turkey it's just i think it was just impractical as you said um of course going to the red bull ring it's a track i do really like it's very simple but you've got a lot of good overtaking opportunities it's a good technical challenge as well for the drivers i think if uh, if there's many races you wanted to do a double header at, I don't think there's many better you could have chosen than to go to the Red Bull ring. So I think in that sense, it's good. Obviously, moving Paul Ricard back a week again. I'm not considering the fact you're having 5,000 fans go, considering obviously Roman Grosjean was supposed to do a test run there as well. It's it's not, I don't think it's the most convenient decision. If I was Formula One personally, I would have kept the French Grand Prix that weekend and seen if I could have done another race the week before i i don't know if they could if it was too late for them to try and sign a contract to allow them to race at hockenheim or the nurburgring for example have a race in germany and take like we did with the eiffel grand prix last season but if you are going to do a double header i don't think there's many better tracks you could have chosen than the red bull ring so in that regards it, it feels like a compromise solution i think if they had more time they probably would have gone for a race in germany if they could have done that but I'm, I'm happy. I'm reasonably happy with what they've done. Yeah, I'll come to you, Jack. Same thing, sort of. Do you think that Austria was the best option for a doubleheader? Or as we were talking about just before we started recording, do you think maybe Britain could have been a good one, especially as the one race we're doing this season will have sprint qualifying and it might have been good to see a comparison between a normal weekend and a sprint qualifying weekend? Yeah, I mean, the thing that we've... Um we've all learned from all this uh i think scheduling chaos is probably the best way to put it um is just how many good tracks there are on the f1 calendar um so double headers great for last year austria the first two races brilliant that like i i was i was uncertain about how 2020 was going to be and that just set the mood for me but going back there again i'd have rather seen another race you know i didn't I didn't think about what Cam said, putting it earlier. Um, but Nurburgring's a great venue. Hockenheim's a great venue. Um, Kyle Army. <laughs> I have to say it. Um, <laughs> I want a world championship. Come on, team. Um, <laughs> uh, 
um you know there's there's so many good circuits that we could have gone to so yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't choose to go to austria twice i wouldn't choose to go to britain twice um even if it's a home home grand prix um but yeah i can see why you might choose to do that if um <laughs> sorry if, uh, no 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 I, I i thought i was finished as well but um what was i saying yeah um with with sprint races on the calendar I can see why you might choose to go to Britain. I can also choose. I can also see why you might choose to go to Austria twice. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely should be a good race, but maybe there were other options for it. But if we're talking about maybe crossing to different continents to do races, we'll cross the continent to America quickly. Moving away from F1, but keeping it on an F1-related note, we saw Roman Grosjean having quite good success in um, IndyCar. I mean, I didn't watch the race personally, and um, Jack, I think you might have. So I'll yeah. sort of come to you to sort of describe it to people who may not have seen it and who, who may be more focused on F1. Oh, I got a good giving us a race rate recap, right? So um, it was at Indianapolis, the um, the uh, what do you, what do you call it, the in, inside circuit, um, the the GP circuit. So F1 went there in two thousand seven, I think. That was the last time they went. I mean, after 2005, it probably um, pr probably a bit late for that. So Grosjean never raced there. Grosjean started in 2009. That was his first race. Um, but he came out. He put it on pole straight away. Um, and then it was a rolling start, too wide. So he managed to hold the lead uh, through the first corner, um, some challenge. And then, yeah, he pretty much, he kind of drove away. Um, Rina Spike was the eventual winner. Um, I really like him. He's he's uh, got the same birthday, so it's like straight on there supporting him. Um, he came through fifth, uh, got the undercut. So in a, in IndyCar, there's a lot more um, pit stops, so he got kind of an undercut. Um, yeah, took took victory by six seconds. But Roman was, you know, it's only his third racing in IndyCar. He really proved he, he had what it takes to race in America. Yeah, I mean, I'll come to you, Cam. Obviously. What we saw with Roman Grosjean Bahrain last year was quite shocking, and probably many people didn't think he'd ever race again. But coming back now to go to what is a different series, different cars, and in your third race, put it on pole and eventually get a podium like that just that says a lot about the sort of the Roman is. So, I mean, what what are your what are your thoughts on well, that? You've got to think Roman Grosjean is not a bad driver by any sense of the imagination. If you Go back to 2012 and 2013, Roman Grosjean was consistently getting his Lotus on the podium. He was competing for victories towards the end of 2013. So he's a very good driver. I just think he's kind of been lumped in with a Haas for the last couple of years that just really wasn't delivering what he needed from that car. And he, of course, he is an error-prone driver, but he's a very quick driver and he knows how to get results. So, yeah, I think it's very good for him to be getting these results in IndyCar now. Um We've seen a lot of drivers go between F1 and IndyCar and not really translate their success in one into the other. There's been kind of very few exceptions to that rule, Nigel Mansell, Jacques Villeneuve. But I think Roman Grosjean is someone who really could translate that success over. I think, it, obviously, he's not doing the oval races this season. I think the crash in Bahrain played a part in his decision not to do that. The speeds are very high, I think. He may want some time just to get used, like we said, with these kind of Grand Prix circuits, which is something he's most used to. I mean, Grosjean made the point, as a circuit compared to the ones he's done so far, this is kind of what he's most used to. Of course, Indianapolis was set up for Formula 1. 
in a way that other tracks have been raced so far in IndyCar haven't. So, yeah, I think he was always going to get some good results. He's really seeming to be dialing in to the series. And I think IndyCar in general, from what I've kind of been following of it this season, does seem to be very close. And I think it's really, there's an opportunity for a lot of drivers from a lot of different teams to do well. And I think Grosjean getting that opportunity, I think is fantastic. And he's clearly showing that he is still a very quick driver and showing us that perhaps we didn't quite get to see exactly what Roman Grosjean could do in Formula One. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I'll come back to you, Jack. Do you think that now drivers have sort of seen how well Grosjean has done? He's obviously a very good driver, but do you think that if a driver was given the option of racing in F1, but possibly for a more backmarker team, so you're thinking like your Alfa Romeos, your Patrick Williams, or going to IndyCar and potentially having the shot at winning or getting on the podium at the very least, or maybe even potentially winning the title, do you think we might see more drivers from maybe like F2, F3 making the switch over to America rather than possibly holding out for many years for an F1 seat that might not even be that good for them results-wise? I mean, I think Roman's situation is very unique, isn't it? He's been, he, he's, he's been a good driver for a long time. He's got lots of experience. And then now he's got the chance, you know, he, he, he lost the seat he's got the chance to go somewhere and prove himself. But if you just look at Roman Grosjean, you're not getting the full picture. Um, I mean, in IndyCar at the moment, we've got um, Felix Rosenqvist and Marcus Ericsson, who've done very well in Formula E, especially. And, um, you know, the, the Marcus uh, Ericsson is probably the exact kind of person you're talking about. He drove for Sauber for a couple of years, very much a backmarker team. He didn't prove himself as much, but if you had the chance of driving for... You know, if I said to you, if I change the question, if I say to you, would you rather drive for Haas now or would you rather go to IndyCar and be kind of like bottom two thirds um, consistently, which would they choose? You'd, you'd hope it'd be F1. Um, maybe it maybe it sparks some people going over, but I think it depends on the driver. And a lot of drivers that would hit the backfield of Formula One are also going to be pretty near the backfield. Um, of IndyCar as well. Yeah, it remains to be seen and we wish, wish Grosjean all the best for his upcoming season and we encourage anyone listening to go check out IndyCar. It's always a good thing to watch. And finally, the one other big bit of news um, that came along uh, this week was McLaren's golf livery. For a one-off for Monaco, they've sort of Put their put a livery inspired by uh, golf, so that's their I think their fuel location. And the golf livery is iconic in motorsport. We've seen it on the GT40 for Le Mans. It's been on McLarens before for their Le Mans runs uh, with the F1 GTR, and it's been on a few Porsches over the 70s and 80s. I mean, I'll get your opinions, your both of your opinions on the livery. I'll come to you, Cam, first. Very nice. I mean, the thing is with McLaren, and this is, I think, something that's happened since Zach Brown has come in, is you've got a real sense that McLaren are appreciating their history a lot more. I mean, Ron Dennis obviously came in, the MP4 project was very much based upon kind of what he could do, set the team up, get success. And it very much felt like his team now, Zach Brown's come in, it very much feels like we're going back to that sort of traditional McLaren now. And they're a team that really do appreciate... I think not their history, because obviously Ron Dennis did appreciate the history. He set a lot of the history for the team, but a real appreciation kind of for everything that came before that. 
to that sort of original team set up by Bruce McLaren, to the team that was operating in the 70s, to the team that was operating, as you said, outside of Formula One as well. McLaren is a name that's been very much associated with F1 under Ron Dennis. It's really branched out now into IndyCar, for example, as we saw in the past with like the World Endurance Championships in Le Mans. So I think this is a real nice nod to their heritage and to do it in Monaco as well, a place that whose spot on the F1 calendar is really because of its heritage. I think it's really a match made in heaven and it's a nice livery. McLaren do know how to make some nice liveries. I'm, quite, I'm always very partial to the papaya, but it is very nice. Yeah, and I'll come to you, Jack. Same question. What are your thoughts on the livery as a whole? I mean, as like the the standard guest, you probably want me to give a contrary argument or something, but I just can't. Is I, I can't say anything anything more. I can try and add to what the, um, Cam said. I think um, 2013 to 2017-ish was a dark dark time for McLaren. Um, you know, new leadership stepping in. They've got this new design um, philosophy. They've got like their pinstripes and they've got their orange and blue, and it's very much a, a different team to the team that um, they that struggled then. Um, I think Lando and Carlos went a huge way to um, to pushing that as well. Um, yeah, this is this is just a, another step towards that. It makes um, it makes for great viewings. An F1 fan, um, I'm a bit of a McLaren fanboy as well. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I can't, I can't say a bad thing about it. It's, it looks beautiful. Um, it means a lot for the team and it, it, I, I'm really looking forward to Monaco, which I wouldn't normally say. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to contrary opinion. There is no contrary opinion. That livery is good looking. And if you would disagree, I will fight you. But <laughs> there have been, I mean, leading on from that, there have been sort of proposals that this could speak the start of a trend that Monaco could be sort of become sort of a retro race. Obviously, we've seen Monaco for the last few years hasn't been the most entertaining of races. So perhaps maybe um, I'll come to you, Cam, maybe Liberty think that something needs to spice Monaco up a bit. So we might see a more retro uh, look. So we'll get maybe, I don't know, we'll get the old Jordan livery, um, which oh, I can't remember which team is technically Jordan now. I, th but... I think it's Aston Martin now, whatever team's yeah, so... based at Silverstone. I mean, I mean, yeah, the thing with Monaco is it's always been based around that heritage and that kind of retro feel. And yeah, it, I, I think it is an idea. I mean, the thing is, I don't. I feel like you don't necessarily want to make it too tokenistic. I mean, it's my general view of Liberty. I think they've done a lot of great for the sport since they've come in and they've really given it, I think that's much more kind of, public connection with the fans they've really worked on that and they've really i think made it something that i think is much more entertaining than it ever was under bernie eccleston but at the same time you don't want to make it cheap tacky and tokenistic i think if you're going to do kind of like a heritage thing you know have some old liveries have some old helmets i think it's a good idea monaco is probably the best place to do it but i feel i feel you need an occasion i feel just because it's monaco i don't feel it's necessarily an excuse to just you know, go for the retro. I feel you need to have sort of some sense of occasion that you're celebrating for that, that you have a purpose, not just because it's Monaco, because Monaco is still a race on the cal on the normal calendar. It doesn't differ in terms of the value to the overall championship. It may be the location, everything, but the location is enough to distinguish it. Having said that, though, if there was a race, you were going to do it. 
it would probably be Monaco. Yeah, I mean, uh, Jack, do you agree? Do you think that it's sort of maybe a good way of making Monaco a bit more unique without affecting the championship, possibly, as we're seeing with uh, the swim races uh, being trolled at other tracks? Yeah, I mean, Cam said exactly what I was thinking. Um, you know, if you want if you want one race, do it Monaco. But I would I would not do that. Um, I would pretty much what we have at the moment, like we saw with the uh, one thousand races livery. Um, give the teams one one race per year. They can change the livery um, with you know with within reason. Um, and I'd like to see more teams take it up, obviously. But you can't force them to. Um, I wouldn't want to try and force them to, um, because you know, if it's every year, then it's it becomes a little less special, if you like. So yeah, I'm glad they're yeah. doing it, but I wouldn't want to see it every year. Okay, I mean, let's just hope they don't have the luck of some of the other heritage liveries. Obviously, we saw in 2019 in Germany, Mercedes had a horror show race, and Ferrari's race in um, Mugello. It was last year. It wasn't great. There are a thousand, um, a thousand GP livery. But speaking of Monaco, that is the next race of the season. Qual- um, practice is tomorrow as we're recording this, and obviously qualifying and uh, the race are on Saturday and Sunday as usual. Um, are you looking forward to Monaco, or do you think it's gonna be quite a boring one? I mean, because we haven't had Monaco for two years, I'm I'm actually quite looking forward to it just to see the cars going round. Um, the track and i guess maybe the, i think the formula e race i think a couple of weeks ago i don't know if it's just because of the nature of formula e but you know the, the drivers were able to overtake there was overtaking in monaco and a lot of it on that track so i'm kind of feeling a bit more excited now i mean the cars are very i think the big problem with the current set of cars is that they're just a bit too wide to really overtake in monaco it's not really the best in that regards and that's why the races do kind of turn very easy into processions at the moment but having said that, Monaco does always have a bit of heritage about it. It's always just a special race, even if the action on track isn't the best. And I think given all the battles that are taking place this year, the fact this is a very close season, I think it's going to make it a bit more interesting on track. And I think we're going to see some drivers potentially take a few more risks and really try and get their way on the tight streets, which I'm really looking forward to. That's a good point. Um, I'll come to you, Jack. Obviously, We've seen that the first four races have each featured a battle between Hamilton and Verstappen, I think, always for the lead. I'm not quite sure on that, but I think it has been always for the lead. So do you think that we'll see more of the same in Monaco and that could spice it up somewhat? Yeah, I mean, if you don't count Perez just not fitting for 20, 30 laps longer than yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't like Monaco. I'm more of the just kind of, if it gets in the way of the racing, just chuck it out, even if it's got history. Um, but I'm, I would, I would like to say I'm hopeful, but I'm just not. They, I can see them just running nose to tail the whole, the whole race. But overtaking, is is very tricky. Um, they've both shown that they're capable of it. Uh, maybe even at tracks that we wouldn't expect. Um, you know, Bahrain was some great defending and. Great overtaking happened um, in uh, in Imola that first corner, but I don't know. I feel like if you watch the first three laps, you can probably guess what's going to happen after that. I mean, I guess you said you don't like Monaco. Do you think that it will be fixed or next year? Obviously, the cars are getting smaller, and do you think it is just 
an issue with how large the cars are and that when we hit 2022 and when we hit the new regulations which make the cars smaller and much easier to follow do you think that's when we'll start to see some good monaco gps again yeah i mean monaco tends to compound whatever issues f1 has doesn't it i think so if the 2022 regulations do fix um the problem we've had with former for following cars um with everything like that maybe um i, d I don't know i don't if that does happen though does our does our perspective what a great grand prix is change does monaco i always feel like monaco is going to be at the bottom back um if the whole if the whole of f1 standard improves great but i'd still get rid of monaco yeah i think your you, your opinion is shared by a lot of people actually so what i'll do is we'll make some predictions um i'll come to you each for your top three and then like a crazy moment that could happen throughout the race so i'll come to you cam first my top three red bull tend to go well around monaco better than they do on other tracks i think that's going to be the same this season so i'm going to go for a verstappen victory i'm going to go lewis hamilton second and i will say valtteri bottas getting third it's the, the hamilton verstappen bottas podium but i can't really see it being too much different from that in terms of a crazy moment in the race that's a tough one that's a I think I, I think it's going to be an interesting one. I do think this could be a race of attrition. I've just got a feeling I think this could be a slightly more attritional Monaco Grand Prix this year. So I will predict points for either an Alfa Romeo or a Williams driver. Fair enough. Um, yeah, I'll come to you, Jack. Same thing. Uh, top three and then perhaps something like unexpected or crazy that could happen at the race. Yeah, I mean... We've talked about Hamilton being uh, Mr. Saturday already. Um, Steve was, we'll let him steal George's title. Um, so I think I think he'll be able to take victory. I'll put him number one. Um, I could go a little bit crazy with it. Um, if if Perez is going to be able to step up, because tyre wear is um, important around Monaco. You want to do a one-stop regardless of what the race is, but it's still quite a long race. I'm going to put Perez second. And then uh, Verstappen third. Uh, and then for, I guess that's crazy enough as it is, but for craziness, let's say some teammates collide, say Ocon and Alonso, they're, they're, there's a, a decent team battle. Yeah, I mean, and one more thing, how many laps will man have been before he crashes into a wall? I'm presuming you're going into the sea rather than the wall. I mean, yeah, I feel, I feel Mazepin will crash in this race because i feel the walls are a bit too close for him um so i i will be optimistic i feel i'm going to be optimistic i'm going to give him at least 50 and i feel he will bring out a safety car that could lead to some slightly interesting strategies going into the last stint and may perhaps fulfill my prediction of an alfa romeo or williams point scoring race yeah and jack what do you think i don't know he seems to crash on his own he doesn't really need anyone else so i think maybe once um whatever set he's got on starts to wear out so lap 20 maybe okay um yeah i think that's um everything we've covered obviously i would encourage everyone to watch the race obviously and there will be a special mr thursday for whoever does well on um in 
FP1 and FP2, because obviously it's on Thursday um, this time rather than Friday. And definitely 100% watch qualifying, because I think most people would agree that's where the best of the action is going to be, unless we do see a car in a in the sea. Right. Um, uh, thank you to my guests for coming on. Uh, thank you to Cam and Jack. Um, make sure to check them out on uh, Twitter and check out um, Warwick F1 Society um, on Instagram. I think Anything else anyone wants to say? No, thanks very much for watching. Yeah, thank, thanks thank for having me. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, thanks for watching, everyone. Um, check us out on any podcast websites and uh, YouTube as well. Right, see you later. Bye.